1: The Humiliation and Exaltation of Christ. You got it. A look at the Cross of Christ next on Abounding Grace with Gary Wagner. <music> Nothing like a look at the cross is a precursor to the holiday season, right? Hi there, and welcome to Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. As we move into the holiday season, it seems only fitting that we take a look at the source or the main reason for the holidays. Whether it's Thanksgiving or Christmas, you can tie it all back to the humiliation and exaltation of Christ. And that's what we're looking at today in Luke 22, verses 21 through 38. Join us. The Humiliation and Exaltation of Christ, Part 1. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner now with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
2: Jesus and his apostles are still in the upper room where they have just celebrated the last Passover and the First Lord's Supper. And now Jesus is giving the apostles their final instructions before he is betrayed and crucified just A few hours later. These instructions are contained actually in chapters 13 through 16 of the Gospel of John, and I would suggest that when you have the opportunity that you actually read those chapters. And I'd like you to read them in the context that it is Jesus teaching His disciples on that Thursday evening in the upper room just before He is betrayed because then I think you will get a feel for the love and the care that he had for his apostles. After giving the instructions, then Jesus prays his great high priestly prayer on their behalf found in John 17. Remember now, it is Thursday evening, and just a few hours later, he would be betrayed. The next day, he would be crucified and buried. He would remain in the grave over Saturday, and then on Sunday morning, God would raise him from the dead. Now, in the text that we are going to consider today, which are verses 21 through 38, Luke records four conversations that took place that night between Christ and his apostles. Now, remember, Luke is an artist with words. He knows how to weave together incidents in order to have a full picture of Christ. Now, sometimes it's hard to see how those various incidents are connected with one another. But trust me, it is a great study to make every effort to try and see the common thread, which is definitely there by which Luke weaves these conversations together. Notice first verses 21 through 23. Jesus prophesies his betrayal by Judas. In verses 24 through 30, Luke tells us about a quarrel that the apostles have again about who among them would be the greatest in the kingdom. And we see... Jesus' revolution of that quarrel. In verses 31 through 34, Jesus warns Peter that he will deny him and yet be restored and useful in his kingdom. Then in verses 35 through 38, Jesus prepares his apostles for their mission into a dangerous world without his physical presence. Now, why did Luke link these four conversations together when there were so many other things he could have brought into the into the picture? Well, Luke doesn't tell us everything that took place in that upper room. For instance, he doesn't tell us about Jesus washing the feet of the apostles. He doesn't tell us... Jesus' teaching about the Holy Spirit that we found in John chapter 14. So why did he mention just these four things and excluded so many others? Remember, Luke had a deliberate purpose for including and excluding any event, any saying, anything he felt unnecessary. Because he only put in things that would support his theme and that would illustrate and explain the unifying idea that he wanted to make about the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples, which is, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost, for the Lord's Christ is Christ the Lord. Now if you remember from previous sermons that I've given on Luke, I've emphasized this over and over. Everything Luke brings out has as its purpose to impact us with the greater point that the Lord's Christ, the Lord's Messiah that was sent from the Lord himself is none other than the Lord himself. The Lord's Christ is Christ the Lord incarnate who came to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, did you notice any unifying factors between those four conversations that Bob read to us earlier? Did you see anything in them that would help you understand why Luke put these particular passages together? Well, I believe there are two strands that hold these four conversations together. The first is that each one of these conversations contributes to the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, there are two phases in Christ's life in order to be our Savior. There is the phase of humiliation that began with His conception, on through to His burial, and there is the phase of exaltation that began with His resurrection and is climaxed in His second coming at the end of time. Now, the reason for His deep humiliation, deeper, more humiliating than any other human being, was because there are consequences to sin. And the Lord came to save people from the consequences of their sin so that we would not be humiliated as deep as we deserve. And then he was raised from the dead, and the humiliation was ended in order to apply salvation to our lives. Now notice how each one of these four conversations is humiliating to him. For instance, in verses 21 through 23, he finds that one of his closest friends, who had been with him for three years... A part of his inner circle, Judas, is going to betray him for absolutely no reason. Then in verses 24 through 30, his apostles argue over personal ambition on this most solemn of all nights in human history. And I'm sure that broke his heart. In verses 31 through 34, He says that his beloved apostle will deny him in just a few hours. Then in verses 35 through 38, he says this world is dangerous because it hates me. And because it hates me, it is going to treat you, my apostles, as common criminals. So in each of these conversations, Jesus' humiliation is deepened on the one night that He needs friends and encouragement. He needs someone to understand Him and what He's going through. But He is all alone. Then there is a second strand that weaves through these conversations. And that is the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ who is in complete control of his death. His death is no accident. The Romans are going to send a troop of soldiers after him, but he's in control of that and all of the rest of this situation. And we see that authority and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ in each of these four conversations. In verses 21 through 23... He prophesies of Jesus of Judas's betrayal. Why? Because he controls Judas's future. He knows what Judas is going to do because he predestined it to happen. Which also means that he controlled Satan, as we're going to see a little later. In verses 24 through 30. This is where he resolves the argument among the disciples as to who will be the greatest. And he says, we don't judge greatness the same way in my kingdom as the world does. And here we see Jesus setting the standards for life and leadership and for reward in his kingdom. Here we see his eternity. He talks about a covenant that God made with him before the beginning of time. Now, you can't see this in English, but just as clear of the bell in Greek, you can see that he says how he is going to share his authority and fellowship with the disciples. Here is the sovereign God incarnate. Then in verses 31 through 34, he predicts that Peter would deny him and that Satan will try to sift the apostles. But... He would not allow Satan to do so, and that he would restore Peter after his failure. And here, once again, you see Christ describing what is going to take place in the future because he has the future completely under his control. Then in verses 35 through 38, you see once again his control of the future. He says, I know what is awaiting you out there, beloved. So be prepared for this violent and dangerous world after I depart. My death is going to be the death of a common criminal. It has all been pre-explained by God. Everything is working toward my death, and yet everything is under control. So we see two strands working together in the four conversations that take place between Jesus and his apostles. We see a heavy humiliation that he must undergo to save us from humiliation. And we see that even in the depth of this humiliation, he is still the king of kings. He still has absolute authority. He is still in full control. Now, let's look at each one of these situations. First of all, today we're going to look particularly at verses 21 through 23. He said, But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined or predestined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. Now, what do you see in this picture? You see him prophesying who is going to betray him. And he says, his hands on the table. It has all been determined by God. This is the night that God predestined for that particular man sitting at this table to betray him so that tomorrow he might die the death that God predestined from all eternity for him to die. But woe to that man by whom this betrayal comes. It is better for him if he had never been born. Now, what do you see in that? You see, two things the Bible is always bringing up at the same time. And it doesn't try to reconcile the two. It just says, here it is. God is in absolute control. There is such a thing as predestination. And man has a free will and is responsible for all of his actions. Now, if you can get these two things all joined together, I'd like you to meet me after church tonight because I've got some questions for you. But beloved, here it is. He said, I'm going to be betrayed, and as it has been appointed, predetermined by a sovereign God, but no one is going to make Judas betray me. No one is going to make him sin, not even God. He's going to follow the sinful course of his own heart, and because of that, he is going to do what he wants to do. And it would be better... That he had never been born. Because he's going to suffer in hell throughout all eternity for betraying the Son of God. So here in this passage, you see as clearly as anywhere else in the Bible, predestination and free choice. And the Bible teaches both, beloved. And you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. You don't have to say, well... I just don't see how God can be sovereign and predestinate various things to take place and yet at the same time human beings are free to do what they want to do and then they're punished for doing the wrong thing. I I don't see how these two things fit together. Well, if you're saying that, let me say to you just as loving as I can, who do you think you are? You say you can't see it. So are you telling me that if something from Scripture doesn't fit together in your puny mind, it can't be true? If it fits together in God's mind, and He's revealed it to us, that is all we need. And we have got to rearrange our own thinking to bring it into submission to the ways of God. Jesus said, I'm about to die. I was predestined to be betrayed, and the man who is doing it is doing it of his own free will, and he is going to be judged for doing it. Right there, you have them both on the same page. Now, why did he say this at this particular point of the evening? Why did he say, there is someone here who is going to betray me, and his hand is on the table? He knew he, who he was talking about, and Judas knew who he was talking about. Only these two men knew. At that point in time, the Lord Jesus Christ was appealing to Judas's sense of responsibility There's still time, Judas. You have a responsibility before me, and I'm calling you to repentance, and you know I am. But Judas sits still. He doesn't budge. In spite of the pressure that he surely felt at that point, he chooses to align himself with Satan. At that point when Jesus said, there is someone whose hand is on the table who is going to betray me, he was compelling Satan to come into that room. Satan, it is time. It is time that you take your best shot. It is time to do what you have wanted to do throughout all history. It's time to bruise my heel, Satan. It is time to come into the heart and take over Judas. So the Lord Jesus Christ virtually compels Satan to construct the frame of the cross upon which he would be crucified, said one commentator. There in that room, the Lord Jesus Christ knows full well that on one hand there is such a thing as election and reprobation, and on the other hand there is such a thing as human responsibility. And Judas has irrevocably chosen to align himself with Satan. And Christ says, Satan, come on in to the upper room. Turn with me to Mark 14. But first, I'm going to read to you verse 21 of Luke 22. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. Now, Mark gives us a little more thorough explanation of what Jesus is talking about. So, listen to Mark fourteen seventeen and following. And when it was evening, Jesus came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, "Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me." They began to be grieved and say to him one by one, "Surely not I." And he said to them, It is the one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. The various apostles say, Surely it is not I. And he says, It is the one who was about to dip in the bread in the bowl with me now it was customary at meals in those days to have a bowl of fruit mixture and this is probably what he's making reference to here it would have been a bowl of dates and figs and raisins and water and honey all mixed up together and he says the one who dips his bread in this mixture is the one who will betray me now Think about the situation. You see what Jesus is doing here? Remember the purpose of this story is to illustrate Christ's control and sovereignty. He says, someone is going to betray me. Whoever dips next in the bowl, that is the one. So what is he doing? Well, to put it in philosophical terms, he is forcing the antithesis. He's fanning the fire. He gives that bit of food and he says that one of you men is filthy. And the rest of you are being sanctified. With that one little bit of bread moistened by fruit. Everything that is about to happen accelerates its pace. And Jesus is the one making it accelerate. And he's calling out Satan to take his best shot. And Satan comes into Judas's heart. He couldn't have done it before. He'd been influencing Judas, but it wasn't until then that a sovereign Christ allowed Satan to come into Judas' heart. And of course, Satan came into Judas' heart. Judas gets up, and the next thing we see of him is the betrayer's kiss. So what we see here And offering Judas this piece of bread dipped in fruit is Christ in all of his majesty and in all of his sovereignty and with all of his control. This piece of bread dipped in the fruit pushes an apostle to be an apostate. You played the game of the apostle for three years, Judas. It's time to be what your heart wants you to be take the bread, become an apostate. The offering of that bread was a catalyst bringing years of secret sin to a climax in Judas's life. You see, Judas came to the supper that evening think it would, thinking it would be no different than any other supper. He'd eat whatever he wanted and he'd converse with the others like always. But that evening, he would eat what Jesus gave him. And so with that piece of bread, he ate death. He eats quickly and he leaves immediately. Now listen, that soft bread from the hand of Jesus has the same effectiveness as the Word of God today. God's Word never returns without accomplishing what, it, what He intends for it to accomplish That word forces choices upon people. It makes people bow in submission or it stiffens their necks in proud defiance. It converts them or it hardens them. And that is what you need to see is going on here.
1: Eight six six five six zero seven. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage dot org. Again, reformedheritage dot Then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number four zero two. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California. The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church two in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by again calling 408 866 5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.